0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series that we started during this work-from-home period in 2020 and uh, has gotten great traction. We look forward to continuing it as we sort of embrace the digital future the way a lot of companies have. But what it is is conversations conversations with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these SALT Talks is the same as our goal at our SALT conference series, which is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And we're very excited today to welcome two guests who have been active investors in a lot of those big ideas, uh, Jahan Bose-Little and Lo Tony to SALT Talks. Uh, Jahan Bose-Little is the managing partner and co-founder of Bracket Capital, an alpha-driven global investment manager focused on later stage technology-enabled companies with asymmetric risk reward profiles. Jahan began his investing career in London on Goldman Sachs' esteemed global macro proprietary trading desk. In 2006, he moved to credit trading where he managed a multi-billion dollar portfolio through the great financial crisis generating record profits and gaining invaluable expertise investing in semi-liquid markets and emerging asset classes at scale. He then joined Millennium Capital as a portfolio manager and was later recruited to lead a multi-strategy portfolio for Bluecrest Capital. Uh, Low Tony is the managing partner and founder of Plexo Capital, which is an institutional investment firm that he incubated and spun out from GV or Google Ventures. Plexo Capital invests in emerging seed stage VCs led by diverse teams and invests directly into companies sourced from the portfolios of VCs where Plexo has an investment. Prior to funding Plexo Capital, Lowe was a partner on the investing team at GV, uh, where he focused on marketplaces, mobile, and consumer products. Before GV, Lowe was a partner with Comcast Ventures, where he led the Catalyst Fund and worked with the main fund where he focused on mobile messaging and marketplaces, and hosting today's talk is Anthony Scaramucci, the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, a global alternative investment firm. He's also the chairman of SALT. And with that, I will turn it over to Anthony
1: for the interview. Okay, well, on behalf of Lo and Jahan, I just want to thank you for reading their bios, the way their moms, their respective moms wrote the bio. I thought you did a great job. I mean, those were condensed. I know that your mom's like chipped in on that. This, I mean, it was unbelievable. I mean... If I had a bio like that, I'd be nailing it to the wall behind me. So congratulations to both of you. I want to start with both of you with a question I ask everybody. And so and our our people love hearing about this. And I'll start with you, Lo, just randomly. I need to hear something about your life I can't find on Wikipedia or from the bio that your mom wrote on your behalf. So tell me something about you that we need to know. Well, probably
2: the thing that you can know is I love video games. And speaking of my mom, she probably is still holding on to some of my comics that I used to collect as a kid.
1: Oh, good for you! So your mom is absolutely terrific. Then, my mother incinerated hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of comics. Okay, uh, and, and and I'll I'll totally expose myself and my age. GI Joe dolls. Okay, uh, you, guys, you guys are probably not old enough to remember those, but I. I, I've lost the fortune. I don't even go on eBay for the tears that I shed as a result of my mother's uh, OCD and her cleanliness. All right, what about you, Jahan? What, what what can we learn about you that we don't know?
3: Um, I guess, you know, staying on the topic of kids, I got a three and a five-year-old. So I'm, you know, I'm deep in the business of parenting and juggling that with, with running the
1: fun. So, you know, I would say that- girls? A, what kind of kids you have? A boy, girl. Okay. Yeah. What about you, Lo? You have kids? I do too. How old are they?
2: Twenty-two and twenty.
1: All right, good for you. Well, you guys look great. God bless. Uh, thank you. I have I have five children, so you guys can catch up anytime you want. Okay, you just have to catch up. Uh, no thanks. No thank you. Right, I hear you. The, yeah. the
0: youngest is known to storm into the room while Anthony's on MSNBC and start yeah, bashing. No. Uh, it was a Santa Claus uh, doll that yeah, he the had. The Youngest
1: has a media doll. contract. He came into the room one morning. <laughs> I told you not to work on Saturdays. He like karate chopped me in the Adam's apple. He took out Santa. He pulled me out of the, it. Was, it was a bad scene on live television, but we get through these things. Okay, so you both have these amazing careers. And so we have to, so many young people that listen in and they're looking at the two of you and saying, okay, my God, congratulations on your careers, but how do I get started? So describe the early parts of your careers, if you don't mind. And talk about the trials and tribulations, the successes and failures. But what was the arc and the mindset to help you get to where you are? Why don't we go with you, John, first, and then we'll have a follow up.
3: Sure. So, you know, I started my career in investment banking. Um, I moved into trading very, very early. I, I became a proprietary trader for Goldman um, after my first year within the firm. You know, at that point, I'd never put on a single trade in my life. You what know, you I, I knew-
1: started Goldman.
3: Uh, two thousand two. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, so I started two thousand two in New York. Steele
1: still running London. Bob Steele. Was he still running London at that time? Uh, it Bob
3: was Sherwood London. when I was there mainly.
1: Oh, Mike. Okay, Woody. Yeah. yeah. Woody, Woody was actually in my training training class. You know. Oh yeah. Yeah, that was like you know I I I, I'm an old timer at Goldman back. Believe in
0: the- it or not, he worked at Goldman Sachs. They they won't tell you that anymore. <laughs> no, they but he actually did work at Goldman. <laughs>
1: Look, I mean, John's trying to hurt my feelings, guys, but it's okay. There's nothing, after I got my ass fired from the White House, there's really no way he can hurt my feelings. But yes, Goldman has more or less tried to erase me from their alumni network, but it's sort of too bad because Solomon comes to my wine party in Davos every year. So he won't erase me because he likes drinking 100-point Robert Parker (laughs) wine. But I would say the rest of the firm has totally written me off. All right, but go ahead. Woody's a good guy. So you work with Woody.
3: Yeah, I mean... You know, many layers below. I was a first-year, second-year analyst. Christian Sivajothi was running the, the prop sure. desk at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a great group of some of the foremost traders probably in the firm's history. Um, and I just was there to soak it up. You know, I, I learned from experience. There's not a lot of, you can teach people sometimes, I think, about proprietary trading. A lot of it is about understanding yourself, you know, your own personal psychology, philosophy, risk limits, fear, tolerance, things like that. And so I spent a few years there. Um, most of them went on to set up their own hedge funds or go work at hedge funds. And so I moved over to credit trading. I'd never really market made in my life. So I'd never really had that experience of touching and feeling the market. You know, those people start on the sell side and with significant experience, move over to the prop side. I was kind of doing the reverse. And so I moved into credit trading 2006. Um, you know, the firm, I think, has always been very, very good at allocating its resources ahead of major market changes. You know, so earlier in my career, I noticed a lot of employees being moved into commodities before the big commodity boom, and the same thing happened in credit. So um, they moved some of us over into credit. Obviously, the subprime crisis unfolded. Um, we had a front row seat for that, and so that was obviously a real pivotal time in terms of me understanding risk, you know, managing risk at scale, understanding um, you know unknowable risks and convexity, et cetera. Um, and after that, um, you know, I, I ended up moving over to the buy side. So, you know, like John said, I spent some time at Millennium and Bluecrest, um, kind of going back to my proprietary trading roots. And so I traded a, a mixed portfolio, some credit and credit default swaps and options, equities as well. Um, and so, you know, that's generally been the arc of my career before I came back to California, which is where I'm from in 2017, uh, to set up bracket capital, which is focused on private markets.
1: OK, terrific. And, and so, so low, take us back. And take, take us through some of these trials and tribulations.
2: Sure. Not as fancy, John. I was listening. That's pretty fancy. I almost had to go and dust off my finance book to understand what he's talking about. It was like
1: doing. unbelievable <laughs> Goldman Sachs humble bragging. We'll get to that later. <laughs> unbelievable. It was like a potpourri of name dropping and <laughs> even through convexity in there, Low Tony. I mean, come on. I, I mean, I've been on Wall Street for 33 years. I still have no idea what convexity is. But that's fine. Rub <laughs> it, but it in, rub on, it in Jahan. Rub it
2: in. Go ahead, <laughs> Moe, Tony. Go ahead. I learned about convexity from Jahan. Actually, I was like, wait, okay. All right, got it, got it. So my background goes all the way. Born and raised in Oakland. Uh, went to school in Virginia, Hampton University, at Historically Black College decided that I wanted to to enter finance as well. I wasn't fancy enough to go to Goldman or Morgan. So I ended up at at some of the commercial banks. And I really discovered that the thing that was really interesting to me was more on the technology side. So the reputation that I developed was, believe it or not, when I was in college, I actually took computer science classes. I cannot use any of those languages anymore. Things like COBOL and Pascal, although if you work for a financial institution, you probably, you know, every now and then you have to break some emergency glass and pull a COBOL programmer out so your whole system doesn't crash because a lot of these infrastructure plays are still running on them, believe it or not but nonetheless decided that what I really was most interested in was just nerding out on technology and always looked for ways to see if I could do clever things with Excel pretty much at the time to solve some of the problems that I was tasked to do. Went back to grad school and during grad school I entered thinking maybe now I actually will be able to go work for one of those fancy investment banks. I was a little more interested in the, you know, the Hambricks and Quist or the Robertson Stevens of the world because, you know, at the time, the Four Horsemen, as they were called then, were the ones that were taking the tech companies public because the, the fancier brokerages didn't really understand or maybe even believe in the power of these new technology companies that were coming to market. Now, a funny thing happened, you know, on my way to the Coliseum. I ended up meeting a lot of venture capitalists. I, I was fortunate to go to Tacal. To I think that also played a role because just proximity-wise, there were a lot of VCs that would come in and just talk about what they were doing. And I have this epiphany that, wow, it's actually, I think, more interesting what they're doing, which is at the front end, as opposed to what the bankers do, which is on the back end. So I decided to completely shift gears and to focus on trying to get into venture capital. So the eager beaver that I was, I would run up to every VC that came to speak to our class and ask, how do I do it? Got some good advice, go be a product manager, run a PL, and l see if you can be a CEO of a venture-backed company. And that's the path that I set myself upon. And know had some great experiences doing some of those things at companies like ebay i was employee 2838 i think when i came in and four years later they were 15,000 people developed a great network there and then was able to have some good experiences at companies like zynga the creator of of farmville and you know learn kind of i went there because i wanted to learn about game mechanics i felt that game mechanics were going to be something big and Who would have ever thought that the combination of that eBay and marketplace experience along with game mechanics um, would actually be able to help me understand some of these models that I see today. But I was also fortunate to to finally enter venture capital through Comcast Ventures and then was pulled over into GV, uh, formerly Google Ventures. And the early stage investing unit for Alphabet is GV's goal saw a lot of amazing companies that came through, got to work with some incredible venture capitalists that helped me really understand how to invest. And there was a strategy that was in place to kind of drive some alpha by working with GPs that were Black and people of color and women and decided to productize that strategy and kind of convince the folks at GV that, hey, I I think I want to just take this model that we've been using. And then I'd like For you to keep paying me while I develop this into a a platform and then spun out with Plexo Capital.
0: You need to be my agent, Lo. That sounds like a pretty good deal.
1: Yeah, it's it's (laughs) an amazing career. I I have a relationship with David Drummond. You you may or may not remember David, who was GC there.
2: Absolutely. Uh, David was my internal sponsor. When he was oh, there was, for, uh, for Capital, along with David Crane, the CEO of GV, who reported into David Drummond at the alphabet level.
1: Um, I, mean, I can't think of Jack's last name now, but he's a, a guy from New York. Uh, is it maybe Jack Abernathy? Maybe I'm, I'm not sure. But but David was a terrific guy. And David is uh, good friends with Ronnie Lott. And so mm, we right. do a number of Super Bowls together. Uh, that's right which hopefully we can get back to those uh, post pandemic we can go back and party at the Super Bowl uh, Jahan let's talk a little bit about the limited partner general partner relationships and could you share the way you partner and you know do co investments and so on I' I'll, I'll ask low Tony the same question but what's your thought process and philosophy there
3: sure um you know, I think like a lot of things within venture capital and perhaps just in financial markets right now, that, that relationship is really evolving. Um, and so I think our relationship with Plexo, you know, Plexo is an LP and bracket capital and Lo and I know each other very well. Um, it's evolving to encompass more, I think, than perhaps what was traditionally the standard arms length, you know, LP writes a check into the GP who operates, you know, kind of with full discretion and reports back on a quarterly or annual basis. Um, I think that just as funds like ours are beginning to be more creative and thinking about ways to approach the market, we'll probably talk about that more later. Um, I think that LPs are thinking the same thing, you know. And so, actually, at Bracket, one of the main things that we've done is structure our fund, um, you know, not just to optimize, you know, returns on the company level, but also to optimize the relationship between us and the LPs. And so, one example of that, you know, that we kind of double down pretty heavily on, and which you know, Lowe and Plexo have been involved in is the co-investment side that comes from some of that top-of-funnel activity that we do. And so we're out looking at companies, diligencing, you know, researching, et cetera. Um, and, you know, many of the LPs, you know, in our cap table um, are highly sophisticated as well. You know, some on the technology side, like Lowe, some from traditional hedge funds, institutional manager, et cetera. And so they have their own view. Um, and there may be things they want to double and triple down on. Which make more sense in the context of their portfolio at their level um, than than our level so we have an operation where we invest you know primarily from the fund and we report and kind of you know manage that relationship in a standard way but we also bubble up co-investment opportunities you know on many of the deals that we do and so uh, you know lps like flexo etc um, you know can just take their pro rata allocation from the fund but they can also you know exercise a view and i think this trend towards you know the institutionalization of family offices, the trend towards being both an LP and a direct investor, I think this is all kind of you know ties into the blurring of the lines, which is happening where people are becoming multi-stage, multi-asset, multi-strategy, um, and so most of our investors um, you know, are, are quite active on the co-investment side as well. Um, and this is a trend that I think that we're going to you know continue to see develop.:
1: Anything you want to add Lotum?
2: That I think really encapsulates the way that we saw the opportunity when we set out to execute on the strategy. The thing that I identified from our time at GV was we used the investment as an LP into some of these seed stage funds to really supplement our deal flow. So it was another channel of deal flow. And I think it's a strategy that's actually fairly widely used. It's just executed differently. I mean, I could think, you know, uh, it's known that folks like Mark Andreessen, Chris Dixon, and Andreessen Horowitz—they do it on an individual level. Um, folks like, uh, you know, Lightspeed—they do it through both investments as well as. Through scout programs. Sequoia has a very robust scout program that bleeds over a little bit into some early stage folks. Then you have firms like Foundry, Brad Feld's group out of Colorado. They've done it so well through Brad's initial LP commitments. They actually brought in Lindell from UTIMCO and formalized a strategy around it. So this is not something that's new. I think the approach that we've taken at Plexo Capital and it's an approach that I think some of the family offices are looking at as well, is to leverage investing as an LP as one of the sole sources of deal flow. So we've got these GPs that are building amazing franchises. They're doing some heavy lifting, looking at tens of thousands of companies on an annual basis. They invest into the top one to 5% or so. So in essence, that's a curation of the best that they've seen in the market. So it allows us at Plexo Capital to be able to use that group, that consideration set, as our primary focus. And obviously, we're spending a lot of time with our GPs like Jahan and others, talking with them about where they see some opportunities. We're looking at all the reports. And then that allows us to be able to operate in a much more leveraged approach and streamlined manner in our operations and team building, but nonetheless still have the ability to identify some amazing opportunities to invest into.
1: Okay. So let, let- I mean, it's it's brilliant stuff, and I love the way you guys are describing it. And it's sort of the future of the sort of cross sectional investing, where people are wearing many hats and doing different stages of investing. To really, it's almost like you're getting diversity through the staging as well as through the different technological sectors and whatnot.
2: That's exactly um, right.
1: What what are some of the, what are some of the most important trends that you're seeing in venture capital? In private markets right at this moment. Where's the money going? You know, I
2: think there's money that is available across, you know, a multitude. One of the things that we touched on a little bit is this trend, in essence, around, you know, secondaries. I think that is something that's really interesting, just looking at the evolution of the secondary market. You know, you can kind of think, you know, kind of pre you know, early 90s, like around the 2000s, you know, the secondary space was was fairly small. Um, probably, I don't know, you know, think around the financial crisis around 08 or so, when a lot of the rules changed from a regulatory perspective, which, you know, had this natural extension effect on the timelines for companies to go public because it became a much more onerous process to do the IPO. Maybe even kind of almost kind of later on, couple that with the interest from some of the non-traditional players to come into some of these companies at the growth stage. So I think the combination of both of those things kind of allowed these companies to be able to operate a little more patiently and not have to rush to the markets to provide liquidity. And then you bring in the fact that you know in order to actually get some realization both for the early employees and founders they could actually execute secondary strategies to kind of offset their eggs being entirely within that one basket of their company and that was also the case for their investors the investors could also now use the secondary whether they were individuals where they weren't really that concerned about trying to drive anything back to other investors it's just going to their own pocket, or for folks like ourselves, where we actually need to drive some dollars back, because often our investors may get a little impatient. So it's nice to be able to, to have a realization through, you know, an avenue other than a merger or an IPO.
0: Jahan, that blurring yeah. uh, between public and private markets, that's that's a 100% a positive development and allows Smaller and a more diverse set of investors to get involved in some of these exciting tech companies early. Are there any downsides to that blurring, or how do you think about sort of this democratization of access to to private companies?
3: Yeah, I think it's a great question, and I think I think there's interesting points to to explore on the on sort of the supply and demand side. You know, I'd say one of the things, one of the benefits to being uh, you know new to a space is that sometimes you know you, which you may lack in experience, you may make up for sort of clean eyes right and so when we first entered the market after having spent so much time on the traditional side one of the things that stood out most to me and this is kind of how my partner yald and i began to to zero in on this strategy was that every other developed market really is a secondary market right in venture you have this unusual bifurcation whereby the primary market is probably 100 times larger than the secondary market secondary market is generally an afterthought what you think of as venture capital is primary market investing but you know the stock market has a primary market as well. It's the IPO, right? And the bond market has an as a you know has a primary market, which is the new issue. But neither of those markets are what fund managers spend their time trading. Right. You actually operate almost exclusively in the secondary market in stocks, bonds, real estate, collectibles, etc. So coming into venture um, and also thinking a lot about competitive advantage, right? And thinking about you know kind of transferring some of the skill sets which myself and the team had from other areas over over into the private market landscape, um, the ideas you know struck out to us is, is quite obvious, right? That as companies were extending their duration, you know, as Lo was referring to, you know, a company like Amazon went public, you know, sub five hundred million dollar valuation. You have ByteDance now worth two hundred and fifty billion, right? So clearly, the value creation is happening disproportionately in the private markets. The duration is extending because there are so many diverse capital sources helping to keep these companies private for longer. Um, which creates, uh, you know, speaking of impatience, right? It creates an, an unfeasibility for the average employee, right? For the first time entrepreneur and also for the average employee and oftentimes for an early stage investor to wait 10, 12, 15, 17 years for a liquidity event, um, you know, is, is, is impossible in all but the most unusual circumstances, right? And so I think that there was this view within Silicon Valley for a long time that if you were committed to your company, that you should be able to wait until a public market event you know and i think that with a three to five year timeline it's probably reasonable right for alignment of interest i think once you start talking about double digits right you know people start these companies and join these companies in their mid-20s you know by the time they're in their mid-30s life has often changed right and responsibilities have changed et cetera. and so um i think you know the the outcropping of the secondary market is just an inevitability right as long as there is capital that wants to find its way into the primary markets the private markets which there is, you know, this will continue. And to your point, you know, when you think about democratization, um, you know, there's, you know, there's one side which is currently very topical, obviously, right, as we're recording this, which is, um, you know, access to stocks, and those might be public or private, and that's sort of on the demand side. Um, but to Lowe's point, you know, the democratization works in the other direction as well. You know, and I think if you if you feel like you want to join a startup, if you have that energy, if you want to create one, you want to be an entrepreneur or be involved in an entrepreneurial enterprise. And you realize that you know you're taking a thousand or a hundred thousand to one odds, right? But perhaps you're willing to do that. But you know that even if you create billions of dollars in enterprise value, you still won't be able to buy a home within driving distance of the office because you need to wait ten to twenty years for a liquidity event. You know that turns off a certain kind of individual. There are certain kinds of risk tolerance and there are certain kind of inequities in the kinds of people who can afford to take a ten or twenty year bet. And so I think actually. The development of the secondary market, besides being, you know, in, in my mind, um, probably one of the most unique asymmetric risk reward opportunities that I've ever seen on the long side. Um, I also think, from a democratization and an ethical, you know, perspective, that it really gives access to being an entrepreneur, you know, to being a, a an early engineer in these kinds of places. To know that if you do create value for your shareholders and your investors, even if it's paper wealth, um, that you won't be prohibited right, from, you know, from from monetizing some, you know, small portion of that along the way. And I think that really opens up the funnel and the aperture for who can start companies, and who can work at them. Um, And I and I do, I think that's, I think that's good for everyone.
0: Lo, I want to jump to you on a a separate topic. And it has to do with diversity within, I mean, the the whole financial industry and venture capital industry, I think are both plagued by it. But you've seen a, a wave recently of companies, whether it be Andreessen Horowitz with their cultural leadership fund, uh, bringing more diverse voices into the asset allocation side of things. And you're also probably as a result of that seeing, I think, more startups led by minority founders. What are you seeing and do you think things are improving in terms of the diversity and the allocation of capital to more diverse founders within the industry?
2: Yeah, this is a topic we're super passionate about. It's the thesis around the sourcing side for Plexo Capital and how we make our decisions on GPs. So we had this insight around the ability for Black GPs we started with and then extended it to females and other people of color. But at GV, what we saw was that there was an access to a particular type of network through Black GPs and this indirect path they had into venture capital. And it allowed us to be able to have this moment where we said, oh, we can actually turn this access into an alpha strategy because what... Deals were being financed by these diverse GPs at the early stages. It required a little bit of familiarity with the market since there was not an abundance of data. And it required a little bit of a different approach and lens to evaluate an entrepreneur. Since, you know, to your point, which I think you're alluding to, We know based on data, if there's a diverse set of investors around the table, their portfolios end up being diverse and it partially has to do with the networks. So we saw an alpha opportunity. And I think the realization that I had with Plexo Capital is that I can build this firm into a brand name institutional investing franchise and focus on using that same strategy to deliver these returns. But our strategy has this interesting byproduct of increasing diversity within the ecosystem. And I think what we need to see more of is that flow of dollars down the stack of capital from the limited partners into the hands of diverse GPs, which should then go into the hands of diverse entrepreneurs. We have seen it getting better. So recently, we've had a couple of instances of unicorns actually led by Black founders. Calendy is the one that, that sticks out in the minds of most people. With based
0: in Atlanta, of- right, Calendly?
2: That's right. It was sneaking around under the radar and, you know, had only taken one round of financing, I think, for maybe less than, I don't know, call it less than a million dollars. And now, lo and behold, they just took in some money at what is rumored to be, you know, in excess of a three billion dollar valuation. So we're, we're moving in the right direction. The more that we can have those events, as well as the liquidity events that come after them will be able to put these diverse founders down the wealth creation path, but also some of those early employees. And listen, the calculus changes when one has a significant financial backstop, because then one's profile and optionality changes. An employee that's early, that has that liquidity event can then take the risk, go start a company or go invest as an angel. And then you know capital goes back to those diverse GPs if they string along enough events that lead to liquidity, capital goes back to the LPs, then the LPs can look at that and say, wow, we should double or triple down on this because it's working. So that's what I get excited about is that leveraged approach to really kickstart that flywheel. Look, this is not dissimilar to geographic ecosystems outside of places like the San Francisco That was my
0: next question. That was my next question because if you're on Twitter today and you follow a lot of people in venture capital, every other tweet is about Miami. Oh, Miami. Everyone's moved to Miami. There's a SoftBank has a $100 million fund now to invest in Miami-based startups. But, you know, we have Steve Case has been to our SALT conferences and been on SALT Talks. And he, he's more about the, distri- the distribution of uh, capital across a wide variety of sort of second tier cities in the US. Geographically, where are you seeing opportunities? Is it distributed or are you seeing a few Austin, Miami type of places that capital is flowing to?
2: It's a combination. The one thing that this pandemic has shown us is that we've changed on a psychological perspective in our acceptance of being able to have a remote workforce, a distributed workforce, and also this notion around, do I necessarily need to go and visit a company in order to get comfortable? You know, for a long time, there was this thought that in order to be an investor, you wanted to invest in your backyard so that on your way home from the office, you could pass by your entrepreneurs and see if their cars were still in the parking lot. So right? if
0: you're on the Google bus, you're waving out the window at your uh, at your companies you invested in? Okay.
2: <laughs> exactly. But this things have changed. And now we've become more comfortable with having remote workforces making investments into ecosystems that aren't in our backyard. It's easier because we can hop on a Zoom call and we've now become accustomed to get comfortable doing this type of diligence and having these conversations. But I think another thing that's really important, right? So it used to be, hey, if you wanna be a movie star, you go to Los Angeles. If you wanna be an entrepreneur, you go to San Francisco. Well, look, entrepreneurship and innovation don't know any boundaries. And so great ideas can surface anywhere. Now, obviously there are some advantages that will remain over time time in places like San Francisco. But in addition to the other obvious ecosystems, Los Angeles, New York, we are seeing some exciting developments in places like Atlanta, in places like the Midwest. What we like to look for typically in an ecosystem is, are there certain elements? You know, We like to see there's a little bit of an entrepreneurial spirit or a counterculture that comes with certain political views or views around activism. I and mean, if we think right. those as important ingredients, we like to see an educational institution that's very research driven, that can spawn off not only a number of well-trained engineers and business people, but also the research that comes out of some of those institutions that can be commercialized. And then we also like to see a few other things, you know, exciting places to live that are going to be attractive to young people and have the ability for there to be a nightlife when they're not at the office working. And then probably, you know, you know, some type of you know, element of, you know, an an international type of vibe, you know, the ability to kind of have a reason for that place to be on a roadmap. All of those things, when they come together, it creates magic. And then if you can add to that an anchor industry that's undergoing digital transformation and today what industry is not, then you can have some interesting crossover for both companies looking for new innovative ideas. And for those companies that are at the startup phase to have access to customers and potential acquirers, as well as potentially even employees that want to jump on the startup craze.
0: Right. We'll we'll let Jahan jump in here. Jahan, I want to talk about investor psychology for a minute. You've lived at the hedge fund level, Point out a little bit of investment banking.
1: You see how the millennial just took over the. I whole took over thing.
0: the conversation. And my 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 <laughs> right, bonus has gone down me. by about I mean, twenty percent as opposed to me monopolizing the
1: conversation. My, you know. my 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 contract says I'm allowed to talk <laughs> with you, but go ahead, keep going, keep going. No, you you asked Johanna a question. No, 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 it's fine. It's it's fine. Don't all worry. right. Yeah, he gets I, mad
0: and I, I get the fan mail. Paid, you know you know how it works.
1: Oh, so, Tony, I paid him his bonus last week. This is how he acts. He gets all <laughs> reverent for the next fifty or so weeks. He's not wrong. I can now talk back to him. He's only nice to me the week prior to the bonus payment. And you know how that happened at Goldman Sachs, right? You know exactly (laughs) what I'm talking about. Go ahead, Dorsey. Go ahead. My feelings are hurt. Jahan, right now we see public markets are extremely hot. Uh,
0: Tech stocks have gone crazy, partly due to the pandemic and this transition to remote work and everything's digital. How has that affected valuations and just the entire climate in private markets uh, as a result of the, sort of the,
3: mm-hmm. I don't
0: wanna say froth, uh, but the, the heat that we're seeing in public markets.
3: Yeah, the heat indeed. Um, look, I think private markets are in a period of, of price discovery to some extent, right? We're in sort of uncharted territory here, um, you know, with the digitization of everything, with, you know, zero slash negative rates, right? With the kind of global economic and political backdrop, et cetera. And I think that you know, common knowledge, right? Over the last few years, um, you know, felt like the majority of so-called traditional or institutional investors, right? You know, sort of those industries that I came from, um, generally thought that venture capital was overvalued, right? They were looking at these companies and saying, you know, unprofitable, being valued on you know unbelievable forward multiples. Um, IPO window was relatively closed. These companies were continuing to stay private. And I think that the commonly perceived wisdom was that they were staying private because they had no opportunity to go public and there would be no appetite from public market investors who I think like to think of themselves as sort of more sober and more rational uh, and perhaps more more quantitative, right? Than the dreamers from California. I think what's happened in the last 12 months, you know, besides the the future being pulled forward, you know, uh, due to COVID, et cetera, is that public market performance by some of these highly valued and, you know, and and commonly thought to believe overvalued late stage private companies, the public market performance has been exceptional, right? And you have, you know, examples like Snowflake, you have examples like Palantir, et cetera, which have sort of defied many, many investors' expectations. And I think, you know, one of the things which is great about the public markets and which I think Um, is unfortunate for investors who've only spent their time in private markets is that the short feedback loops in public markets force a kind of honesty on every investor. You know, you're talking about investor psychology. It's very difficult to continue to hold a view in public markets, which is wrong because the market tells you you're wrong, right? And it's painful, but you have to realize it on a day by day, if not a minute or second by second basis. Private markets have very long feedback loops, right? Sometimes it can be five or 10 years before you know if an investment has worked or not. That company may have pivoted two or three times in between the early stage investment. And so you may not know if the reason you invested um, and the reason you profited is actually the same thesis that drove you to make the investment in the first place. And so I think there are benefits, strong benefits to a very long-term mindset that the private markets have and endorse. And I think the public markets can learn from that. But also I think there's a degree of humility um, and, a, and, a, and a degree of kind of transparency um, with respect to looking in the mirror on the public side. And so I think anybody who's honest with themselves, who has sort of a public market mandate needs to look back at the hypothesis and sort of the wisdom of the crowds from the institutional side over these last few years and essentially admit that they were wrong, right? They were wrong, at least in the near term, about what these companies could do Um Certainly, they were wrong about the investor psychology from public market participants, right? Because the stock price on any given day can show you that. Um, And so what does that mean? You know, what what does that mean for public market investors beginning to look at private markets? And can you use the same kind of valuation valuation metrics? Can you use the same sort of mental models? Is it as useful to be able to perform a discounted cash flow model, you know, on a business which is growing 500% a year as it is on something growing five to 7% a year? And so I think we are in this very interesting area of price discovery. Um, obviously the innovation with SPACs and direct listings and things like that are continuing to blur the lines between public and private. In my sense, um, you know, and, and sort of our bet you know, in, in, in some ways as a firm at Bracket is that some of these distinctions are really um, going to be looked upon as artifacts, right? I think that you're increasingly going to have someone who's an equity investor now, whether or not that equity trades on the NASDAQ or not is really sort of uh, you know so, sort of an illusion to some extent, right? I think you have startups certainly, and those have a different risk reward profile. You have very large companies, right? Like the Fangs, but you have this very interesting subset of late stage businesses, which we almost fo- you know, focus exclusively on, which are market dominant, large enough to be public, in many cases larger than the public companies they're competing with, oligopolistic-like pricing power, you know, SpaceX's, the bite dances, the stripes of the world. Um, And to have an artificial distinction from such a large capital base of institutional investors that say that they can't buy that company until it's in the S&P 500 really is just forfeiting a lot of alpha to people who can look across that blurred line. And so increasingly, I think that we're going to have multi-stage investors on both sides. Is that line going to disappear completely?
0: What does that yeah, look I think, like?
3: I, I think what it looks like to me is that, you know, as we said earlier, secondary markets are the norm, right? And so there will always be primary market financings on both private and public stocks. But um, I think that the end game is a very liquid secondary market, which is orders of magnitude larger than the primary market, which as we said, is the case of pretty much every other developed asset. And I think that the ability to buy an Airbnb last year or a Stripe this year will probably you know not be as liquid as buying Amazon stock today, but it might look something like the corporate bond market. And so increasingly I think you're going to see these things changing hands. Once companies can get their head around, you know, the rules and regulations and there are concerns about having people in private companies, you know, sell stock too early. There are moral hazard issues that need to be worked through, et cetera. But all those things are are achievable. Um, and so I think eventually, yeah, you're going to have a Stock market, right, and that stock market yeah. will span the gamut.
0: Yeah, I mean, with Stripe, it what raised at a thirty-six billion dollar valuation in I don't know, was it September or was it earlier in the year? We call late yeah, in the year, really and late. interested in in uh, you know maybe buying some. Oh, it's a hundred. That's right. Just the movement that you're seeing in private markets, the magnitude of those moves, I guess, is a reflection almost magnified that you're seeing of the. The heat, as we said, in, in mm-hmm. public markets. But great time to be where you are, Jahan, for sure. And Lo, uh, you guys partnering as well. I want to ask one more quick question. We'll get quick responses about government regulation. So, you know, we've seen a wave of outcry about censorship on social media. We have a new administration coming in that you know potentially could be a little harder on the regulatory front as it relates to business and tech. Uh, what do you expect to change at all, if at all? in the new administration as it relates to uh, you know regulation around uh, tech companies? And how do you expect that to affect you know, public and private market prices? And we'll start with you, Lo.
2: What an interesting question. It's a tough one to answer fast, but I, I will just say that I think that we have just seen, along with the change in the administration, we saw some of the forces that came to light that led to some of the issues that we had around political parties clashing. And clearly, the platforms play a role in that. And I, you know I go back to something that I think about, which is, you know the First Amendment is designed to protect individuals from the government. But you know when we look at the decision making process that that Jack Dorsey went through on Twitter when he was making his decision around former President Trump, the one thing that came to light, to surface to me, was you know, oh, of course he, you know, he can do whatever he wants to. It's a private company, you know. But what happened? Because you know, individuals have options. You can go to another platform, right. and start your own site. But you know, what happens? when that platform becomes so dominant that it's almost like a utility where everyone that has something to say is expected to go on. And so, you know, I think we're in this interesting point where, you know, once again, we are seeing how technology evolves at such a rapid pace. It's it's almost impossible, especially for documents that were written three, 400 years ago to try and keep up.
3: Right, Jahan? Yeah, um, I think, you know, what I'd add there is that, you know, from my perspective, I expect there to be substantial regulation on large public tech companies and 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 the platforms in particular. Um, I feel like that's I feel like that's coming. Um, I also think that probably, you know, the positive side of tech. Recognizing that it has sort of a societal role, and not trying to be entirely distant from government, but realizing that the two need to work together. Now that technology businesses are effectively the incumbency, um, and that they affect the lives of people every day, um, is that most of the, you know, or many of the most important problems that need to be solved. You know, now that we know how to deliver food to ourselves at the click of a button, and you know, and shop, uh, you know, on social media channels, et cetera, the areas like healthcare. Fintech, these are highly regulated areas. It takes a special and a different kind of an entrepreneur to operate in these kinds of spaces. Um, and so I think you know the recognition that technology companies need to find a way to cohabit with governments, national governments, and local governments. um you know there's a lot of wood to chop on that side, but there's also a lot of opportunity because I think that the real promise of some of these venture- backed businesses, if they're really going to be transformational, is to deal with some of the most important problems. And some of the most important problems in our society are in those heavily regulated industries. Um, and so it won't be easy. Uh, but I think, um, I think that there's actually, you know, cause for a lot of optimism or you know around governments and technology businesses learning how to work together.
0: Well, Lo and Jahan, thank you so much for joining us today on SALT Talks. Anthony, very sorry for taking over the conversation. It was too interesting. Our guests today were too interesting. I felt compelled. To jump in and next time we don't have time for it today but jahan is going to show off his musical talents on salt talks here um you know he he sort of had to keep his his musical career on the down low tony uh when he was at goldman sachs but thankfully now he can openly show off his multitude of I mean, skills i
1: mean this is some wise ass millennial though right you see how he used your name as a yeah, that was good. That was good. I've never heard that. It's not as good as Obama. Yeah, like, then he's like, I like he don't little... even remember Ed McMahon, but like he's like his own Ed McMahon where he laughs at his own jokes. You know, remember? <laughs> I mean, look, it's not as good as President Obama
2: when he asked me, oh, low Tony. So is there a high Tony? That's the best one <laughs> I've ever heard.
1: <laughs> well, you know, sometimes right. low Tony was probably high, though, right? Is that what you're about? <laughs> I'm kidding, man. I'm kidding. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you guys for joining us. God bless you guys. Okay. I'm looking forward to watching the uh, sensational career arcs that you guys are on and I wish you much great success in the future. And I think we're
0: going to end up co-investing together on a couple of deals, guys. Let's, let's work on that. uh, And we'll get you back on salt talks.
2: That'll be fun. That was great. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Take care. All
0: All right. right. Thank you to everybody who tuned in to today's salt talk. Uh, with Jahan, Bose Little, and Low Tony. Just a reminder, if you missed any of this episode or you want to watch some of our previous episodes, we have all of them on our website, free and on demand at salt.org backslash talks backslash archive. And you can sign up for all of our upcoming talks talks at salt.org backslash talks. Uh, Please follow us on social media, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. We are on there. Please follow us. And please tell your friends about Salt Talks. We love growing the community. Uh, We we love today getting to know our guests, uh, Lo and Jahan, and and we love meeting more people uh, through these SALT Talks. But on behalf of the entire SALT team, uh, this is John Darcy signing off for today. We'll see you back here again soon on SALT Talks.